My name is Jeff Jones. I'm the junior high pastor and fourth string preacher. Jack is preaching at another church this morning. Well, one of my favorite memories came at well, came during my first year at Boise State University in Boise, Idaho, home of the Boise State Broncos, whose football team plays on a blue field, also called the Smurf Turf. It was during that year in 1994 that Boise State's football team was actually having a good season. In fact, going into the last game, the team had only one loss. I couldn't help but think at the time that their success had something to do with my attendance at the university and my dedication to the team. But the final game of the season would be no easy victory. It was rivalry week. Boise State versus their arch rivals from the north, the Idaho Vandals a team who had also only experienced one loss in the season and, quite relative to the game, had previously beaten the Broncos 13 years in a row. So this game was a big deal. The winner of the game would be declared the conference champion and would have state bragging rights over the other. And the loser, well, wouldn't. Now, I lived in Idaho for five years, and I'll just let you know, in Idaho it doesn't get much more exciting than that. But to this day, I remember the sounds, I remember the feelings, I remember the hoopla, I remember the excitement, I remember the freezing cold weather, I remember the stadium being crammed well past capacity, I remember the foolish Vandal fans who thought they could come into our stadium stadium and gloat of their 13-year reign, and so were continuously pelted with snowballs and tortillas and other things we could get our hands on to throw at them. But as for the actual outcome of the game... It couldn't have been more, more exciting. It was, it was a nail-biter. It went down to the last few seconds, and even then, we didn't know who was going to win. But when the clock expired, thanks to an incredible defensive stand, the, the, the score was Idaho 24, Boise State 27. And at the sound of the final whistle, the entire student body, including myself, despite the attempts of security to stop us, we rushed onto the field, jumped onto the goalpost, couldn't get the thing down, but uh, it was still just a sweet time enjoying that moment of triumph. And I was so excited. I was high-fiving the players, embracing people I had never seen or met before in my life. It was just such a great feeling to finally overcome 13 years of humiliation and win the conference title. And as the saying goes, in a backwards way, defeat is agony, but victory is sweet. Well, why do I tell you this? Because being part of a sports-loving society is easy for us to picture the concept of victory, what it is to triumph over and against overwhelming odds, or at least in athletics. I know being in L.A., you have fond memories of the many championships won by the Lakers. Perhaps you can recall, I believe it was 1988, when the Dodgers won the World Series. And who could forget that, that Kurt Gibson home run? Anybody remember that? That was, that was just exciting. And with all these victories, of course, there's celebrations that follow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I want you to know that in a way, much more significant than sports or athletics, God has achieved a victory for us. It's actually more of a victory in battle, but since I'm not a war expert, sports to me is a, is a good analogy. But just like a warrior in battle... God has triumphed over our worst enemies through Jesus Christ. And since Christians reap the benefits of that victory, we are called to remember it, to announce it, and to celebrate it. And so today, from the book of Ephesians, and some have asked me, what, 
what verse I'm going to be preaching on, and it's actually the whole thing. Uh, I know being under Jack's teaching, it's hard to imagine that. But uh, we're going to attempt to, well, we're going to have to skim some parts, obviously, but we're going to go from the, we're going to learn from the book of Ephesians. And from the book, we will see God as a powerful warrior who has triumphed in battle for the sake of his people in order that we as his church might proclaim that triumph in our day-to-day lives. And so I have two points this morning. First, we must understand the triumph of God in Christ. And secondly, we must embody it. But first, by way of understanding, two subpoints. Understand that the triumph of God is a hidden thing. It's a hidden, it's a hidden reality. And also we're going to understand that it's very, very mighty. So to begin, understand that God's triumph in Jesus is a hidden reality. If you haven't turned to the book of Ephesians, go ahead and open there. But the opening verses in Ephesians tell of the great blessings that we have in Christ. And actually those first few verses from verse 3 all the way to 14 are one long sentence in the Greek language. Uh, but after that, after Paul goes over the great blessings we have in Christ, he moves to pray for his, for his readers as he does in many of his letters. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Just follow along with me as I read. It says, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Stop there. Notice that the content of Paul's prayer here is not about the death of a pet, which I hear so often from junior high students. It's not about success in a job interview. It's not about recovery from a sore throat or something like that, but rather something much more important and significant. What Paul continuously prayed for and emphasized continuously was that God would give the people he was writing to a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It's not a prayer here that we'd all become prophets or something like that, but it's actually a prayer that we would gain knowledge from God that only comes by way of revelation. And if you don't know, the word revelation just denotes the giving or receiving of some information that we can't know unless it's revealed to us. If we're going to know this information, it has to be told to us. And so essentially, Paul is praying that we would get something, that we would understand something about God and what he's done that we wouldn't be able to just by walking through day-to-day life. And again, notice how he continues to pray in verse 18, which speaks more to this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints, and what is the great, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of, his, of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. And notice again here that it's not our physical eyes that Paul wants to be opened, but it's the eyes of our, eyes of our heart. He prays this because he wants us to under, understand a reality that is hidden, something that's beyond the sight of our physical eyes. And if we come to see in this way, Paul lets us know that we will gain a true understanding of what God has done for us in calling us to himself. We will understand what God will do for us in the future by giving us an inheritance. And we also come to know what he is doing for us currently right now by working powerfully in our lives. And just in summary, Paul is just basically praying that we would understand that we would see with the eyes of our heart what god has achieved for us in christ the total package of it by his mighty power and after this of course paul will will explain how god has done that but just the preliminary point to understand is if we're going to understand what has been brought about in christ by god's mighty power for our benefit it's something and we're going to have to understand something 
That's not visible in the way you see me right now. We're talking about a hidden thing that we must be told in order to know it. So Paul prayed that we'd have the eyes to see this. And moreover, notice that this is something that he constantly prayed for. So pray for yourself that you would get it, that you would understand how God has triumphed in Christ. In the youth ministry, there's a song we sing. Maybe you've heard it before. It's called Open the Eyes of My Heart. A song at first, when I first heard it, thought it was kind of cheesy and repetitive. But now after studying this text, I have gained a new appreciation for it. The lyrics go like this. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. And honestly, this is precisely what Paul is, is praying for us to understand, to see Christ high and lifted up, even though we can't see him with our physical eyes. So having prayed for this understanding, Paul thankfully doesn't leave us in the dark, but goes on to explain exactly and precisely how, how, he is, how God has triumphed mightily in Christ. And throughout the next two chapters of Ephesians, Paul will write to help us understand this by giving us four proofs of God's triumph in order that we might understand his, his triumph in Christ as a mighty triumph. So first, God mightily triumphed in Christ by exalting him above all else. Notice in verse 1, 20, after he's explained that there's this power that works in our lives, he says in verse 20, this power which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, these words right here. Of all the, the statements about Christ, these are the most lofty and exalted that I can think of. And just as the song goes, here is the picture of Christ high and lifted up just to begin God raised Jesus from the dead, says the text in verse 20. In other words, God, through Jesus, triumphed over death. When I think about the worst things an enemy could do to me, it could kill me. But it couldn't hold Jesus. And some of the songs we sang testify to that, how victorious his triumph over death was. Jesus rules over death. Next notice, also in verse 20, that God seated Jesus at his right hand. Now, in the Old Testament, to be at someone's right hand was to be in a position of special honor or special power. It was also considered the strong hand. And God is spoken of as using his right hand, his strong hand, to defeat enemies and rescue his people. This language is also used in Psalm 110, maybe a psalm that you've heard of. Jesus quoted it in his own day. The apostles refer to it often when speaking of Jesus. And it says this, the Lord said to my Lord, and that's how it really goes. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the psalm goes on to speak of the one who sits at God's right hand, and you could check this out later if you want to. The one who sits at God's right hand is the one who rules in the midst of enemies. The one who shatters kings, says the psalm. The one who judges nations. It even talks about this, this king, this one who's at God's right hand, piles up the corpses of those who would stand against him. And so to say that Jesus is at God's right hand is to say, on the one hand, he is in a position of highest authority and power in the universe. And on the other hand, it's also to say that the enemies of God are defeated and put on the run, that they have been humbled by him because he is over them. And in verse 21, Paul emphasizes this even more. Notice what it says. He's been seated or exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And those terms, rule, authority, power, and dominion, those 
are generally used in this, this letter of Ephesians to speak of the hostile, the evil powers that, that exist. Yet Christ is exalted over them. And it says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So just in short, Jesus rules over death and he rules over enemy powers. His lordship, his rule, his exaltation is universal and it's going to last forever. Next, he doesn't stop there. God subjected all things under Jesus. The previous statement under, emphasized that Jesus was over everything. Now this one emphasizes that all are under him. And I believe that Paul is making a reference to Psalm 8 in this one, which speaks of mankind as given the unique responsibility and privilege of ruling over God's creation. And so when it says there that Jesus rules over all things, it's just a way of saying he rules over all creation. He rules over death. He rules over his enemies. He rules over creation. And lastly, it says God gave Jesus as head over the church. And so one more rule. He is the one who rules over and sustains the church. So let me repeat. He rules over death. He rules over enemy powers. He rules over all creation and he rules over the church over every possible sphere that you could think of. And so I would ask how much more high and lifted up shining in the light of your glory. Can you get after winning a great battle? One of my favorite superheroes said of his super team, we are number one. All others are number two or lower. Well, in essence, This is what Paul is saying of Jesus when it comes to his authority in the universe. Jesus is number one. All others are number two or lower. Scholarly type people sum up these verses by saying this, by calling Jesus in these, these verses, the cosmic Lord, the one who rules over the cosmos, which is just a way of saying Jesus is the triumphant, the exalted Lord of the universe, which for us is the first proof of God's mighty triumph in that he has exalted Jesus above everything. Everything else is under his authority, which leads me to my one and only rabbit trail to appropriately understand the exaltation of Jesus. We have to understand a reoccurring phrase that comes up in this letter. And maybe it's bothered you. Maybe you've not known what it is before. It's that little phrase in the heavenly places or in the heavenly realms or in the heavenly. It's sometimes translated. Well, looking at Ephesians, we can see that the phrase heavenly realms is used in reference to one, the place where Christ is exalted. As we just read, he is seated far above every enemy power in the heavenly places. Secondly, it's the place where believers receive spiritual blessings. Some of the opening verses of the letter say that we have been given every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. And three, the place where wicked forces and powers dwell, as in 612, which says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the dark forces of evil, against the powers in the heavenly realms. And so just to put it real simply, the heavenly realms refer to the invisible, yet very real realm of, where Christ, angel, Satan, and demon exist. I'll say it again. The heavenly realms refer to the invisible, yet very real realm where Christ, angels, Satan, and demons exist. And even though we can't see this realm, it has a huge impact on the world we can see and experience every day. In fact, what goes on in the invisible realm has great sway and influence over the the world we can see and vice versa. For instance, the evil forces of the invisible world, like Satan, as you should know from Ephesians 2, Hold us in bondage to sin. There's influence there. But also Christians are told, as we, we mentioned, are to do battle with these evil forces after being saved. And so there's influence there as well. 
But what we must understand for now is the place of Christ's reign is a fear is a sphere we where we can't see. His reign is not like the reign of President Bush, where I can say, "Oh, there he is in the Oval Office doing what he's doing, whatever presidents do." But uh, not so with Jesus. We can't we can't point and say, "There is there he is there there I see him on the throne." That's why Paul prayed, and perhaps you're understanding why he prayed this that we would see this with the eyes of our, our eyes of our hearts. So Christ's exaltation is very invisible to us, but it's nonetheless very real. And so this leads me to ask a question. If all this is true, if Jesus really has defeated and rules over these enemy powers like Satan and his demons, what has he done to prove it in light of all the weakness in the world? And the answer to that is the second proof of God's mighty triumph, which comes up in chapter 2. And it's this. God mightily triumphed in Christ by breaking the enemy powers which held us in bondage. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says here, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And just for your information, the ancient Jews believed that evil spirits, including Satan, lived invisibly between the, the earth and the moon. Hence, Satan is called the prince of the power of the, of the air. But it goes on here of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them too. We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated, him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Now, these verses are familiar to most of us. In fact, this week at our junior high and high school summer camp, our, one of the speakers, Scott Ardavanna, spoke on um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And he let us know that in these verses, Paul describes our past condition. He describes how horrible it was to be an unbeliever, to be apart from Christ, so that we might fully appreciate how, how mightily God has triumphed in our life. He says in verse 1 that we were dead in our sins. Now, I used to take, take x-rays, and, and one day I got a call to go take an x-ray of someone from the mortuary mortuary. Did I say that right? Um, a dead person. Now, normally when I take, take x-rays, I can tell the person, you know, move your hand this way or that way. And usually they're screaming in pain and I can tell that they're alive. Um, or they, I, you need to hold your breath or do this or that. But this person didn't matter what I said. He was dead. Well, this is our condition. We were once dead before the Lord. We were unable to respond to him. Well, secondly, Not only were we dead, we were depraved, completely controlled by Satan, completely enslaved to to do our own sinful lusts. That was our condition. And thirdly, we were doomed. We're children of wrath, the text says. We were deserving of the same judgment that Satan himself deserved, being held in his bondage. Our condition was so bad and so awful that there was nothing we could do to help ourselves. Yet God, the text says, quite dramatically and quite decisively, motivated by his great, great love, he reached down into our world and rescued us, demonstrating his mighty power. I don't know if you've read Psalm 18 before, but in that Psalm, David speaks of some of his encounters with with Saul. If you know from the story, Saul was always after David to kill him, throwing spears at him and things like that. But uh, in in the Psalm, it's so great. He gives God praise for rescuing him from the hands of Saul. But it isn't to say, Lord, thank you for rescuing me from the hands of Saul. He, he attaches all this, this mighty and powerful imagery to how God protected him. He speaks of God as fighting for him. He speaks of God as, as someone who, who rides on the clouds 
which in, in Old Testament thinking was a picture of a divine warrior, or maybe in our day we might think of like a superhero. He speaks of God actually ripping open the heavens and reaching into to David's world to rescue him and protect him from harm. He speaks of God as sending fire and hail and earthquakes and lightning and all sorts of things to confound his enemies. To David, God was so powerful that he would shake the entire earth so as to rescue his people from enemy hands. And so it is with us, with our salvation. God came right into Satan's sphere and snatched us from his grip. This is how we're to view our own salvation. And as the text in Ephesians goes on to say, in more familiar verses in 289, this salvation is not something we can take credit for. Our rescue is not something that we can boast in of ourselves. It's not something we accomplished in and of ourselves. It says it's by grace, through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. So what occurred in our salvation may be invisible to our eyes, but is something just as dramatic and just as powerful and just as real as when God divided the Red Sea, sent plagues upon Egypt, performed healings, cast out demons, or even raised Jesus from the dead. And if you want proof that God is a mighty warrior who will go to battle for you and confound your enemies, just look at your conversion. If you've been converted, God's power has, has worked mightily because he broke the power of sin and broke the power of Satan. Well, I've called this sermon God the Warrior, and hopefully that's becoming more obvious. And it's subtitled, Proclaiming His Truth in Christ. And I do that because Ephesians, in in many ways, some obvious and some more subtle, show God to be a mighty warrior, and a warrior that's really after an Old Testament kind of pattern. And so just to illustrate this, I want you to turn to Exodus 15, where we can see God's mighty power uh, in action in in a visible situation. Exodus 15. The context of this passage is, of course, very important. God has just delivered Israel out of Egypt from Pharaoh's hand and by those mighty plagues, those ten plagues that he put upon the nation. And then, of course, when they came to the Red Sea, he utterly annihilated Pharaoh's army by washing them over with the water. And so when you get to chapter 15, it records this song, this song of praise that was, that was sung to the Lord. And I just want you to notice some of the parallels between how the Lord is spoken of here and what he did and what is even going on in Ephesians. So just first off, notice that the song gives lofty expressions to the Lord, just expressions of great praise. Look at verse one. It says, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Verse two, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Look at verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Down at verse 18, it ends with this. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And just very interestingly... This is, this is the way Paul spoke of Christ in Ephesians, highly exalted, reigning forever and ever, accomplishing mighty deeds with, with a right hand. Well, second, the song expresses how the Lord broke the power of Israel's enemies. Notice, notice again in, in verse 1, the Lord is exalted. Why? The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. 
Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them, and it goes on. Look at verse 16. Terror and dread fell upon them, but the greatness of your arm they are motionless. Your people pass over, O Lord, until the, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. So one, you have these, these statements of these great praise. Why? Because God has done great things in rescuing the people from, from enemy powers, which is exactly what we just learned about in Ephesians, that God rescued us from enemy powers. But third, the, the song speaks to an eventual building of a structure, a structure for God's dwelling as a monument to his praise. Just look, look back down at verse 17. It says, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. In ancient times, temples were often built for false gods to dwell in and be honored for some great victory that um, the people thought their God had won for them. But interestingly, this is precisely what Paul goes on to say the true God did. As a result of his triumph in Christ, not only is he exalted, not only did he rescue us from enemy powers, but know what else he did? He built a temple. He built a temple that stands as a monument to his mighty power, which is the third sign of God's triumph. God mightily triumphed in Christ by building a temple. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to skim over some of this. If you want detailed explanations of some of these verses, you can... Ask me later, I guess. But verse 11 says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Verse 13, But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jump down to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now this temple here, it's, it's one that's going to take the eyes of your heart to see. The temple spoken of here is not made of stone. It's not made of gold. It's actually made of, well, us. We're the temple. God built a temple as a monument to his victory by taking peoples who were formerly disunited like Jews and Gentiles and bringing them all together in Christ. If I can go back to a sporting illustration. In sports, the team that wins the championship trophy, well, that trophy stands as a token of their triumph over all their opponents. Well, the church has a similar function. God's temple points to his triumph over enemy powers. Now, as his dwelling place, his triumph is seen through our own lives, which we will develop later. But just know that since God has built a temple, it's a token of his victory. It points to his mighty deeds that he's accomplished in Christ. So far, we've learned that God has exalted Christ over all. God has broken the power of Satan and those forces hostile to God. God has made us into a temple as a monument of his mighty achievements. But just in case there is any doubt that God the warrior has mightily triumphed over every conceivable opponent, Paul just has a little bit more to say to this issue in chapter 3 by answering a possible objection to this. Namely, if God has so triumphed in the way just described... If God is truly so mighty and powerful, then 
why is Paul in prison? And as you know, Paul wrote this letter of Ephesians from prison. This looks more like humiliation than triumph. It looks more like weakness rather than power. But in actuality, Paul's imprisonment, his weakness, his sorry situation, actually, in the plan of God, serves to further God's triumph. It serves to make it known. So fourth proof of God's mighty triumph is that he achieves victory through weakness, through weak vessels. Notice verse 313. After explaining how his ministry works, he just ends by saying, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. They're no sweat. Because why? They're for your glory. They end up working out for God's own purposes. And this is because the weakness of God's vessels, regardless of how moronic, I mean, I think of myself, like I could describe myself in two words, moron. Um, <laughs> and Jack Hughes would probably tell you, you know, I got C's in seminary, but he's used so mightily by God. And Paul's saying the same thing about himself. The weakness of the vessel does not hinder the power of God. And Paul, in this text, verse 8, he says, I consider myself the least of the saints, and the lowest. But even though he considered himself low and insignificant and unable, he was still used by God. He was still given a message, a message called the gospel, which brought people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation into the church and into a relationship with God. And even though Paul was not man of great significance or ability, God could still use him mightily. And this lets us know that a weak person in a helpless situation can accomplish mighty things in the hands of a mighty God. And God accomplishes his purposes in such ways. But just very interestingly, in the midst of all this discussion, Paul fills us in just precisely how how much of an impact he can have through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Notice chapter 3, verse 10. This, this verse actually has just revolutionized my thinking. But after telling you and telling us that he, the least of saints, the least of all the saints, was given the grace to preach Christ, he lets us know on how, what it results in. He says, I preach Christ so that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul's preaching, regardless of his status, regardless of his situation, results in God's wisdom being made known to those enemy forces in the heavenly realms. Or in other words, Paul's ministry carries on the triumph of God despite his weakness. Now, just to illustrate this, I have another sporting analogy. In the 2000 NBA Western Conference Finals, your beloved L.A. Lakers were playing my beloved Portland Trailblazers, or Jailblazers as they have been known. I'm from Portland, in case you didn't know that. The Lakers in that series were up 3-1. But Portland battled back to force an important game seven. Now, I watched the first three quarters of that game thinking the Blazers had it in the bag because by the end of three quarters, they were up by 15 points. But as I'm sure most of us remember, in the fourth quarter, the Lakers rallied and won the game, and the Blazers completely fell apart. It was a sad day in Blazer Town, but uh, happy days down here. But toward the Toward the end of the game, there was one play that really sealed the deal for the Lakers. It was a play that was shown over and over again on replay, and it was one that Blazer fans such as me want to forget. 
That is, Kobe Bryant made this incredible alley-oop pass to Shaq, and Shaq dunked the ball home. And I remember on the, on the replay, I just saw all the Blazers with their heads low like this, but Shaq, you know, doing this pointy thing as he's running down the court. Well, for me, every time I see that replay, and it, they still show it every now and then, but every time I see that replay, I'm reminded of one thing. Your team lost. Your team loses. The Blazers lose. Well, I, this is an illustration. The church, quite interestingly, has a similar purpose in the plan of God. That is, whenever someone is called into the church, and whenever even the church acts like the church by obeying Jesus, the triumph of God is replayed again in the sight of those in the heavenly realms. It may not be visible to the watching world, but those in the heavenly realms, Satan, angels, demons, God's triumph is made known to them. The church has this incredibly significant role of making known God's superiority, his supreme wisdom over his enemies, that, that his, his wisdom is better than theirs, that they couldn't, they couldn't confound him in any way. And so notice again in 3.10, on the one hand, you have, God's, you have God's wisdom, his manifold wisdom. On the other hand, you have those rulers and forces in the heavenly realms. But right there in the middle is the bridge. And the bridge is, guess what? You, the church. The church is the means through which God says to Satan, Satan, you lose. I win. Or my wisdom is superior to yours. And it was Paul's special job and your special job to call people into this church through the gospel and his own weakness his own situation, his own imprisonment, his own being the least of all saints was no hindrance to this at all. So now, just looking back at the first three chapters, hopefully the eyes of your heart are beginning to see the magnitude and mightiness of God's triumph. God has exalted Christ above every conceivable power. God has exalted Christ, um, excuse me, he has broken the power that held us in bondage to sin which gave him the right to build a temple as a, as a monument to his superior power. And all these things he accomplishes through weak vessels such as Paul or you and me. So now, wherever God's church is, wherever God's church exists, there is a trophy, there is a banner, there is a monument to God's mighty power in the sight of his enemies. And so point one, understand the triumph of God in Christ is finished. Do you understand how mighty God has worked in our lives? Well, secondly, then, having understood what God did in Christ, we are now to embody it in our lives. And by that, I just mean we're to celebrate it. We're to carry it on. We're, we're to live in light of it. In sports, fans who really have little or nothing to do with the success of their team, yet when their team so happens to win a championship, most fans have no problem sharing in the excitement as if they were somehow part of it. They throw parties, they honk horns, they boast, they boast to fans of other teams, they buy t-shirts, they put flags on their cars. I see those all over the place down here. Well, Christians have a similar kind of responsibility and privilege. We're to carry it on. We're to carry on and celebrate what God has done in Christ. And this was so important to Paul that just as he prayed for the eyes of our heart to be open, he prayed that it would be embodied in our lives. Look at chapter 3. Verse uh, 19. This is a really heavy-duty prayer, and I'll just give you the end. The end of his prayer is that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's, that's what he wants for the church. He wants the fullness of God to be seen in our lives. Or put another way, he wants God's triumph to be displayed in us. 
And beyond that, in chapter 4, a more familiar verse, Paul moves from praying to commanding, and he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Or put simply, Christians are called to live like people who have been rescued from, from, from enemy hands, who have been rescued mightily by God. We're to live like people who stand as trophies of Satan's defeat. And this is not something we're supposed to take lightly. It's, it's important that we live up to our calling because remember 310? Through the church, the wisdom and superiority of God is made known to Satan and those evil forces. And so we got to realize that God's triumph in Christ isn't just about defeat. God triumphed by creating a saved, a renewed, a united, an obedient people, us, a people who follow Christ, a people who love one another, a people who shun immorality, a people who live wisely, a people who, a people who engage in spiritual battle. This is our calling. When he says he wants you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, that's it. That's your calling, to carry on and proclaim the triumph of God in Christ in your lives. And we've got to realize that to the extent that we live up to our calling, is the, is the extent to which God's triumph is made known to Satan. If we don't fulfill our, fulfill our calling as believers, it doesn't make Christ's triumph look very effective, very triumphant, would it? Well, in the last three chapters of this letter, Paul tells us how to live up to our calling. And for the sake of time, I have just chosen three, three areas out of a whole multitude in three chapters that I see as particularly important for our church. And so first, embody the defeat of Satan. Embody that by engaging in spiritual warfare. Now, today there's a lot of buzz about what spiritual warfare actually is. Today there's many people who think they need to speak directly to Satan, perform exorcisms or whatever. Uh, When I was in Idaho, I had a couple of friends who... When they first became Christians, they were told that demons lurk in their homes and their closets, and so they had to be really careful when they walked around. And they often went to bed afraid, thinking some demon was going to jump out of their closet and attack them or possess them or something like that. And uh, so I know those kind, the kind of thinking is out there. I even had a roommate once, and I could tell you the long version of the story some other time, but he actually thought he needed to cast Satan out of our apartment and so attempted to do that one morning. It was very very awkward roommate time at that moment. <laughs> but Ephesians, Ephesians lets us know how to engage in spiritual warfare. And it's not that Christians need to speak to Satan and tell him to go away or leave me alone, whatever. It's not that we need to perform exorcisms and cast out demons. Rather, you know how you do spiritual warfare? You trust and obey God and love each other, period. If we were to read the spiritual armor passage in chapter 6, we would see that battling the forces of darkness, of evil, of wickedness in the heavenly realms is done by obeying God and trusting him and relying upon his resources. And we are to remember that it's our obedience, it's the church living like the church that sends the message to Satan. We don't need to say anything to him with our mouth. We need to obey God. And when we obey, then it's a way of saying, Satan, God has defeated you. And so it makes our mundane obedience really not so mundane. That your obedience to the Lord can send a message to Satan. God is wiser than you. God has defeated you. And I've used this just to teach the junior hires to have motivation to obey their parents, which is something commanded in Ephesians, that 
you know, little boy, little girl, little junior high or high school or whatever, that when you obey your parents, that sends a message to Satan that he is defeated, that God has been triumphant over him. Or husbands loving your wives or slaves being obedient to masters or whatever. Our obedience makes known the power of God, makes known the triumph of God. And so, if anything, may this give you some some powerful motivation to obey. But I want to move on to just two specific areas of obedience. And the second way we can embody the triumph of God is by embodying the new man, embodying the new man that God has created us to be, by being generous. Our church, as you know, is, as we just learned with the Dave in his hard hat, that was interesting. Our church, as you know, is embarking on a building project, which, of course, will mean that those who consider Calvary their home will have to be generous. We're going to have to be generous to make it happen. Well, Ephesians 2 and 4 talk about how God has created us to be a new person. He has regenerated us, made us new. We're born again. He has made us alive from the dead and so on and so forth. And in chapter 4, he gives us some very specific ways that we can put the new man on display and thus put the triumph of God on display. And one of them is found in, in chapter 4, verse 28, where he says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Or in other words, those who have been rescued by God in Christ from their former bondage must no longer steal and be lazy. That's the old man in the old way. Rather, we must work hard and be generous. And I believe that if the Lord has truly triumphed in our lives, has truly triumphed in our church, you know, then raising this money for this new building, what, $960,000 we need to get it started, should be a piece of cake. Because if our building comes to pass through genero- the generosity of our renewed hearts, then it will make known the triumph of God. And that's some good motivation to build a building, I think. Thirdly and lastly, let's embody our new unity that we have in Christ by being people who resolve conflict. And this, is, this area is very key. I know that many of this room have relationships with other people as friends, as spouses, as husbands, as wives, as brothers and sisters, which inevitably means that there's going to be conflict being sinful people as we are. As the junior high pastor, I see siblings fighting with siblings. I see children disobeying their parents. I see husbands failing to love their wives and vice versa. I see fathers provoking their children. I see friends holding grudges. I see guys and girls who break up, never speaking to each other again, even though they're Christians, you know. Conflict is all around us, but we need to deal with it, and it's important that we deal with it. And I want to show you just one more verse here. Look, look back two verses to chapter 4, verse 26. It's a familiar passage. Be angry, and yet do not sin. There is an appropriate way to be angry. But it goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger, which just is a, a way of saying, Resolve conflict quickly. If you're mad at someone, if you have an issue with someone, deal with it before the sun goes down. Before deal with it, deal with it quickly. And a lot of us know that verse, but we oftentimes have, don't know the next one, which says in verse 27, "And do not give the devil an opportunity." You see, in Christ, we're united. We're one together. We're His temple. We're His people. But when members of the church are in conflict with one another. The text says it gives the devil a foothold. It says, if we were to say, yes, God, I know that you have triumphed here, but Satan, why don't you just have your territory back? That's what conflict does. So dealing with it is serious business for Christians. We need to deal with conflict. 
And I don't have time this morning to give tons of examples, but just let me ask some questions. Husbands, are there issues with your wives that you need to deal with or vice versa? Are there things you haven't resolved? Those of you who have brothers and sisters, maybe some young people, I think they're all over in the high school room right now, but siblings, do you fight with each other? Children, are you in a good relationship with your parents? Parents, are you an example to your children? in what a loving relationship looks like. Or those of you who have friends or broke up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, are you holding grudges? If you're doing that, we're giving, a, we're giving the devil a foothold, a place in this church. But we want to be a church who, who stands and carries on the triumph of God. So let's not give the devil a foothold by fighting with one another. Let's be united. Let's deal with issues. So they come up, but we've got to deal with them before the sun goes down. And rather, let's, let's put the triumph of God on display in our lives by having self-sacrificial and loving relationships with one another. So today, you have learned that God is a mighty warrior. You have learned that he has triumphed in Christ over our worst enemies, and all that for the benefit of the church. And now we, as his people, as his church, have the high calling of showing it off. And so let's be kind of like those wild and crazy fans who have no problem honking horns and running to the street to proclaim their team's victory. Let's, in a more sensible way, um, do that as Christians. Let's celebrate his triumph in our lives. Let's pray. Our God, you are great and mighty. You are a warrior. Lord, you do mighty things. Thank you for releasing us from the power of Satan. Thank you for making us as part of your church. Thank you for giving us the privilege of making known your wisdom to those in the heavenly places, even Satan. Thank you that you've triumphed over him. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see it. I pray you'd open the eyes of our hearts even now. And Lord, I also pray that, that your triumph would be embodied in our lives and how we live. And I just would pray with Paul that you, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, would do that in our lives according to the power that works within us. And to you be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen.